Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36, the Mount of Transfiguration. In the previous verses in chapter 9, we looked at Jesus up at Caesarea Philippi. He tests his disciples as to their belief in his Messiahship. He then predicts that he's coming, the Son of Man is coming in that generation before some of them would taste death, but not all of them would taste death until he comes, which makes it most highly likely that he's referring to the his coming in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. And now he's going to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. I've discussed this in Mark, in my audio on Mark 9, verses 2 through 8. Also in Matthew 17, 1 through 8. I'm going to splice in Mark 9, 2 through 8. It's a thorough discussion, and, we'll, and it Mark parallels Luke as well as Matthew for that matter, they parallel pretty closely. And I should, and I've taken all three synoptics into consideration as I did the audio on Mark 9, 2 through 8. So it should do the job and it begins now. I'm in Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 1. We're going to talk about the transfiguration. There's two parallel passages in Matthew 17, first eight verses or so, then Luke 9, verses 28 through 36, is another parallel passage. They're mostly the same. There's a few differences we'll talk about as we go through. The context of this is Jesus is up at Caesarea Philippi, up way north of Bethsaida. He has just told the disciples openly that he's going to go, go down to Jerusalem and be killed. Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and then he said, no, don't go down and get killed, and Jesus said, get behind the Satan. So that was the immediate context. We'll start in Mark 9, verse 1. Then he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, I assure you, he said that to the disciples and the multitude, I assure you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Now we need some lead into that, so we'll need to take the last verse of Mark 8. For whosoever be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man also be ashamed, shall be ashamed of him when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And as, and as I said in the last audio, Jesus is now predicting his coming in judgment on Jerusalem in eighty seventy. It has to be that because he said in another parallel passage that some of you standing here some of you standing here shall not taste death until the Son of Man comes in glory with the Father of His angel, in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. If it was the end of the world, some of the people would, ta- all of the people would taste death, and so Jesus' statement that some of you would taste death would not be true. So it can't be the end of the world. It can't be the Mount of Transfiguration, which is about to happen in six days. Can't be hap- then because. All of you would not taste death. Nobody's going to die in six days. And so that makes no sense either when he says some of you shall not taste death. But 80, 70, 40 years later, some would die and some would not die in 40 years. And so his statement makes perfect sense that some of you would taste death in 80, 70. So here's what he's talking about as we get into chapter 9. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. And, of course, the coming in power is the coming to destroy Jerusalem and burn it to the ground in AD 70. Moving on to Mark 9, verse 2, Mark says this, After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed in front of them. The high mountain, where is it? The traditional sign is Mount Tabor, which is on the north of Israel, but still in Israel. But that's probably not true because... Mount 
Tabor was near Bethsaida, and Bethsaida had a Roman fortress there, and Jesus wouldn't probably be going down there. A, a fortress that was controlled by Herod Antipas, probably. He's not going to be going down there. Plus, the mountain is only 1,800 feet high. That's not high enough to get away from the crowds because all this needed to be private. As Jesus told his disciples, don't tell anybody about what happened until after I die. So it needed to be private. 1,800 feet is nothing. People could have climbed up there. Plus, it's too far away from Bethsaida. Mount Hermon is right up there. Excuse me, it's too far away. Mount Tabor is too far away from Caesarea Philippi, where they are now. So most probably he took them right over to Mount Hermon, which is at the end of one of those Lebanon ranges there, anti-Lebanon range, that high, high mountain, about 9,000 feet high. That is probably where this was taking place. The NIV Study Bible says this is where it is, probably. The NIV Study Bible denies that it's Mount Tabor, and so do Gill and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Mount Hermon is the chosen spot by the NIV study Bible and by Robertson in his harmony. So I think that's probably true. Now he took along Peter, John, and James. Peter, James, and John. Those are the three that Jesus always had with him. For example, at the healing of Jairus' daughter, in the last visit to Gethsemane, and here on the Mount of Transfiguration, he took his three closest disciples with, with him. Now notice that Peter was one of the three. Now in the space of one week, this is what's happened to Peter. First of all, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but your Father in heaven. And then he says he's going down to Jerusalem to get killed. And Peter says, No, no, you don't, no, you can't do that, Jesus. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. So he's gone from being the making the confession upon which the church of Jesus Christ would be, would be built to being called Satan. And now he's back up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. So Peter had sort of a roller coaster spiritual ride. Why did Jesus take those two up there, those three, Peter, John, and James, to pray? But he took three up on the mountain to pray here. Why? Because he needed witnesses. That's the scriptural requirement. I'm out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. That was a legal requirement. So here we got witnesses of what happened, just like there were witnesses of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Mark says that Peter, James, and John were led up on the high mountain by themselves to be alone, and then the transfiguration occurred, and Mark says in verse 2 that this happened after six days. Six days after what? After Jesus said, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come in power six days later. But Luke says eight days later. Well, how do you reconcile that? Well, Mark is not counting the and Matthew too. They're not counting the day that Peter made his confession. That's day zero. Then you got six days in between. That's seven days. And the day of the transfiguration is day eight. Luke counted the beginning and end days. So that's the easiest way to reconcile that. Another way you can do it is these events were Sunday to Sunday. Excuse me. These uh, eight days is a, a way of expressing one week. For example, in John 20, verse 26, John says this. After eight days, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. This was on a Sunday evening, and the Resurrection Sunday was on a Sunday. So from Sunday to Sunday was eight days. That was one week. Of course, that's really the same thing, same way of saying what I just said, because you're counting the end points. If you count the end days, that's eight, one week is eight days from Sunday to Sunday. So we move now to verse 3. End of verse 2 says he was transformed in front of them, and verse 3, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no laundra on earth could whiten them. Now, the reason his clothes became dazzling is because Jesus' his body under those clothes became dazzling. 
Jesus appeared in his glorified state, according to, to the NIV study Bible, and his brightness shone through those clothes. You could say the clothes themselves were transfigured and became something else. I don't believe that. I believe the light was shining from Jesus and penetrated the clothes. Notice this happened after Jesus was praying, and I, I assume that his disciples were praying with him. What was he praying about? I speculate he was probably praying about the suffering he was about to undergo in Jerusalem. He had already told his disciples he was going to be killed. So he prayed, and he prayed about this terrible trial he was going to have to go through. And what happened? He got transfigured as a result. What a great answer to prayer. A foretaste of glory is what is necessary to get one through suffering. When we consider the full weight of glory that's going to come upon us, what are, what are the sufferings of this present world? And so Jesus got a glimpse of that glory, to I think, to help him get through the suffering he was going to have to go through when he got nailed on the cross. Remember, Jesus was a man. He had all the apprehensions that you and I would have about getting nailed up on a cross. There's something about knowing about the glory that makes you put up with the suffering down here, and that's why it's really good to contemplate heaven and not think of it as some place where you sit around all day and playing a harp with a halo on your head, this stupid medieval art. People got the idea you're going to be bored to heaven. I would suggest everybody read Randy Alcorn's Heaven, I think is the name of his book, in which he talks about all the multitude of activities we're going to be doing up there and having a good old time. It's going to be great, and all the sufferings of this present world, we're going to forget them, and they're going to be counted as nothing compared to the glory of living forever with Jesus. Mark chapter 9, verse 4. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, there's a reason why Moses and Elijah showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses represented the law, as my NIV study Bible and Adam Clark say. That was the old covenant that was represented. The prophets were represented by Elijah. So we got the law and the prophets. And then, of course, the new covenant is represented by Jesus. And when this whole story is over, the old covenant, Moses and Elijah, the prophets, they're going to disappear. And Jesus, representing the new covenant, is going to keep going, and which is exactly the way things are. The old covenant has passed away. The prophets have prophesied unto Jesus, and so now their prophecies are fulfilled. But the new covenant goes on and on and on and on and on. There's a question that can be asked. How, does, how do Peter, James, and John know that it was Moses and Elijah? They could have had immediate divine revelation, according to John Gill, or it could have come, they could have figured it out from the discourse with Jesus, which followed. I think that's probably the, the answer. Another question that can be asked here is, how did Moses bodily appear? Adam Clark says his body was probably resurrected, in contrast to Elijah, because Elijah's body never died. Elijah was translated bodily into heaven and did not see death, 2 Kings 2.11. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. Then Elijah, that was Elijah and Elisha. Then Elijah went up into heaven in the whirlwind. Now, I don't know exactly what that looked like, but it's not your normal death. So Elijah would just have to come back spiritually. Or, well, they, excuse me, came back bodily, as did Elijah, and they were glorified. Now, the appearance of Moses and Elijah must have confirmed the disciples in their belief in the afterlife and the resurrection of the dead. As Adam Clark points out, when you see them bodily, you've got to figure, well, people are going to be resurrected from the dead. Moses had been dead about 1,400 years. Elijah had been dead about 900 years. And there they were. Now, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. What were they talking about? They were probably talking about his impending death. That seems to be the common theme in these last couple of incidents, after Jesus announced he was going to die in Jerusalem, that's probably what they were talking about. We don't know that. It's a speculation. I wouldn't be surprised. 
verse 5 in Mark 9. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6, because he did not know what he should say since they were terrified. Well, I guess when you see something glorious, that would terrify you, but also you'd want to stay there. And that's a booth is someplace you live in. So he was thinking, let's just stay up here forever. Let's, let's don't go back to that grubby world down there. Luke adds a detail in verse nine, chapter 9, verse 32. Peter and those with him, that's Peter, James, and John, were in a deep sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who were standing with him. So they saw Moses and Elijah speaking to Jesus after they woke up. So they were kind of groggy with sleep. They see all this glory. They don't know what's going on. In fact, in verse 33 in Luke 9, it says, after Peter says to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. He was out of his gourd. He was dazzled with the glory. It was the middle of the night. He was sleep-deprived. He was disoriented, and he said something that was really kind of foolish. You don't make an earthy little box for people who've been living in heaven to live in. I mean, that's just not appropriate. Peter wanted to prolong the stay of the important people, but Jesus had to finish his task on earth. If they'd have stayed up on that mountain, there's no way he could have died on the cross. And so, once again, Peter is good-hearted, but he's not using his head. That Peter said it is good for us to be here. Why was it good for them to be here? Well, as a matter of fact, it was good for them to be here. Peter was right. This was a confirmation who Jesus really was, the Messiah. When the disciples saw this glory, they know, hey, all those miracles were something, but this is even better. We know he's the Messiah now. Remember, just earlier at Caesarea Philippi, the, at their last stop, he had asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Some people said John the Baptist, some said Elijah, some said Jeremiah, some said another prophet. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, Peter had already confessed that he was the Messiah, and the other disciples followed probably were spoken for by Peter, so they all believed he was the Messiah, but now there's no doubt when they see the transfiguration. So it was a confirmation that Jesus was the Messiah. It was an encouragement to the disciples, because remember, their Messiah is very shortly going to be murdered. That's a tough thing to deal with. And they had just been told of Jesus' impending death. In Matthew 16, 21, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed. And be raised the third day. Some people point out that when Peter tried to build booths for the two prophets, Moses and Elijah, and one for Jesus, he wanted to erect a new tent of meeting like in the Old Testament. This is according to the NIV study Bible. He was thinking of the booths used at the Feast of Tabernacles. He was looking for glory now as opposed to glory after Jesus suffered. He's apparently still not reconciled to Jesus' impending death. He was thinking that being in glory there was better on the mountain was better than being in shame and fear in Jerusalem. And in the short run, he was exactly right. But remember, God is more interested in the long term. Now, here's evidence to show what Peter's frame of mind is, how he was not in a suffering frame of mind. He was in, I want the glory now frame of mind. He was rebuked by Jesus for saying Jesus would never die in Jerusalem, if you recall last chapter at Caesarea Philippi. He wanted to stay here in chapter 9 at the Transfiguration. And then he cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest slave, when Jesus was arrested because he just couldn't bear the fact that Jesus had to die. Now, Luke adds the detail that 
Peter did not know what he said when he said he was going to build those three booths. So here's some options as to why Peter didn't know what he was talking about, what he said. He could have been frightened. Maybe he was foolish in thinking that the glory would be permanent when it was not going to be permanent. Well, I think both of those are true. He was frightened and he was foolish. Maybe that's why he didn't know what he was talking about. Both of those reasons. Know that Jesus didn't even bother to give him an answer because it was a dumb suggestion. Here's another point. Peter said he was going to build those booths when he saw Moses and Elijah departing. In other words, they were leaving. That's what triggered in his mind. No, 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 no. Don't go. Let's stay here. Let me build you a house. Luke 9.33 says this, As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here, here. As they were departing, as the two men, that's Moses and Elijah, were departing from Jesus, from him, Jesus, Peter said, Master, it's good for us to be here. So that's probably why he suggested the tabernacles. He didn't want the glory to leave, those glorious Moses and Elijah to leave, the, leave his presence. Mark chapter 9, verse 7, A cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's the name of a famous essay written by John Zins, which got New Covenant Theology started 20, 30, 40 years ago. Excellent essay, which I've read closely. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. One more testimony. And you got three witnesses there, Peter, James, and John. They can testify what they saw, what they heard. This is the same thing, of course, that God the Father did at Jesus' baptism. Now at his transfiguration, same thing. This is my beloved son. Now in Luke 9, or excuse me, in Mark 9, 7, it's also in Luke and Matthew 2 for that matter. Mark 9, verse 7, a cloud appeared. What is that cloud? That's the Shekinah glory, as in the Old Testament. Not an ordinary rain cloud, it's the Shekinah glory. Now Peter who was on the mountain, he wrote the gospel, the letter of Second Peter. In chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, he describes his experience up there. He said, For when he received, he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory. So the cloud is called by Peter the majestic glory. The Holman Christian Study Bible capitalizes that, the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, I take delight in him. Verse 18 of Second Peter 1, And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain, which of course is the Mount of Transfiguration. Now this Shekinah glory, this is not the space, we don't have the time or the space to talk about that. The Shekinah glory is all over the Old Testament. Here's an example, Ezekiel 1.4, I looked and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing. Ezekiel 1.28, the appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day. Exodus 16.10, as Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there is a cloud. And there in a cloud, the Lord's glory appeared. So it's a bright, radiant cloud. Shekinah glory also appeared in the Holy of Holies. And I could read on, but I think that's enough. Well, here's one right here. Exodus 33.9-10, when Moses entered the tent, the tent of meeting, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain at the entrance of the tent, and so forth. Mark says, the voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Luke adds the detail. This is my son, the chosen one, the elect. So not only is the church the elect, Jesus Christ himself is the elect. And actually, the chosen one or the elect is a Palestinian title for the Messiah, my NIV study Bible says. Chosen one is an Old Testament term. Comes, For example, in Isaiah 42, 1, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. 
So God refers to God the Son, God the Father refers to God the Son as the chosen one. And the voice from heaven from God the Father says, listen to him. Listen to him, guys. Don't just listen and let the sound waves bounce off of your eardrums, but listen in the sense of follow him and obey him. Deuteronomy 18.15, the famous prophecy about the prophet. This is Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brethren. You must listen to him. Same phrase there in that famous passage in Deuteronomy 18.15 as the voice that came out of the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark 9 verse 8. A cloud appeared overshadowing them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I just read that. I'm sorry. That was verse 7. Verse 8. Then suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. That means that Moses and Elijah have left and there they are alone with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now we're going to accompany Jesus and his disciples and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, as they walk down from the Mount of Transfiguration, which was probably Mount Hermon. And Jesus is going to deal with two questions the disciples have. First, where's Elijah? We know you're the Messiah now. That's obvious after what we've seen. But the scriptures say that Elijah is supposed to come first. Where is he? That's the first question. The second question is, what's this business about you rising from the dead? Exactly what does that mean? That was a little off their radar scope. So we take it up now in Mark chapter 9, verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, what are the reasons why Jesus enjoined their silence? Well, there would be a better time to tell the story of the transfiguration. The story would be more believable after the resurrection. That's what he said. He said, don't tell anybody until after I've risen from the dead. Well, if you can, if you, if all those witnesses realize that the tomb's empty, well, they can. It'd be much easier to believe the transfiguration. That's one possibility. Another option is that Jesus had promised no sign from heaven except the sign of Jonah, and this would be a sign from heaven, obviously, because it's kind of a rare thing for people to be shining like the sun on the top of a mountain. That's John Gill's idea. Je- Jesus had promised one sign; that he wasn't going to give the people this sign. Another reason is he, he didn't want. The disciples to tell about the transfiguration is because it would especially irritate the Jews. Here they would find out that the hated Jesus Jesus was seen talking to their beloved law and prophets representatives, Moses for the law and Elijah for the prophets. Well, yes, it would irritate the Jews. And in fact, it might cause his ministry to get shut down before he got a chance to go down to Jerusalem and finish his ministry down there. So he's saying, we've got to stay cool here, disciples. Not until after I rise again from the dead shall we be open about this. Now, when he said, don't tell anyone, does that include the other three, the other nine disciples? Well, probably so. Here's the options as to why the others were not told. They were like, they would likely disbelieve him. I mean, Thomas didn't, Doubting Thomas, got a famous name, Thomas Didymus, was called Doubting Thomas because he didn't believe when he had credible evidence that Jesus had been resurrected. He didn't believe and he might not believe the other disciples when they see it. Although, I don't know, how do you tell Peter, James, and John, ah, oh, no, you're lying. And, and you have to tell Jesus he's lying too. I, you know, so I don't know. I don't think that's a good option. Here's a better option. They may have become jealous if they weren't let in on the privilege. Yeah, maybe so. But how about the third option is, the more people you tell, the more likely somebody's going to leak the secret. I mean, every time Jesus told other people don't tell about their healing, they went out and told everybody that he couldn't keep it quiet. So he was maybe just trying to be careful, keep it close, keep the secret close to his chest. 
Those three disciples, Peter, James, and John, obeyed Jesus. In Luke 9, verse 36, says this, After the voice had spoken, that's God the Father, only Jesus was found. They kept silent, and in those days told no one what they had seen. So I'm assuming that Peter, James, and John told no one, including the other nine disciples. Now on the way down, in verse 10, in Mark 9, they they did talk to themselves about what had happened. Maybe not other people, but to themselves they talked about it. They were discussing what rising from the dead meant. Let, let me go ahead and read uh, verse 10, Mark 9, verse 10. They kept this word to themselves. That's Peter, James, and John. Kept it quiet. Kept the word, a promise not to tell anybody until after Jesus rose. They were discussing what rising from the dead meant. Now, you know, rising from the dead, maybe they might have been talking about the resurrection of Israel at the last day, a general resurrection. People are going to rise again from the dead at the end of time. But no, they were talking about Jesus' resurrection because Jesus said after he rose again from the dead, you could talk about it. So they're thinking, what do you mean he's going to rise from the dead? They had no clue as to what he was talking about. And by the way, when the disciples shortly hereafter were on the Olivet Discourse asking Jesus about his coming, and people always say, well, that's the coming at the end of the world. The disciples didn't even know that Jesus, they couldn't conceive that he would die, and they couldn't conceive that he would rise again from the dead. And so we're to believe that now they're asking about him coming back physically at the end of time after having been crucified, which they couldn't understand, after having been resurrected, which they couldn't understand. Oh, but they understand him coming back at the end of time. I don't think so. That's because I'm an Orthodox preterist. Notice that the day that they came down from the mountain was the next day. They stayed up on that mountain all night long. When they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. We see in Luke 9, verse 37. Now in Mark, let's look at these two questions. These two questions, they don't show up in Luke, but they show up in Mark chapter 9, verse 11, starting in verse 11. The parallel passage in Matthew 17 does talk about this Elijah question. Who is Elijah? And Mark talks about it too. Mark 9, verse 11. Mark has the extra detail that they were discussing about what rising from the dead meant. So that's unique to Mark. But now Elijah is in Matthew and Mark, but not in Luke. They began to question him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Of course, the scribes know everything. You know, they're the experts in the law. And the disciples knew enough about scribal teaching to know that Elijah was supposed to come first. Verse 12, Elijah does come first and restores everything. He, Jesus, replied, How then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? The disciples asked him, excuse me, that's Jesus saying that. Verse 13, But I tell you that Elijah really has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as, as it is written about him. So Jesus answers the question very simply. It's not literally Elijah that comes in the flesh. It's symbolically because John the Baptist was the forerunner. John the Baptist was Elijah preparing the way. Just as it was written about him. Now, where was it written about him? That is in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. Look, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers. That's going to be reconciliation, in other words. Okay, so Malachi had already prophesied that God was going to send Elijah the prophet before the awesome day of the Lord comes. I assume that's AD 70 when Israel's wiped out and the day of the Lord is a symbol of judgment. So Elijah the prophet's coming before then, and Jesus said, look, Elijah has come. His name's John the Baptist. 
Now, Jesus doesn't mention John the Baptist by name in Mark, but in the parallel passage in Matthew 17, 13, it states explicitly that the disciples knew Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. In Mark, there's a detail in Mark that's not in the other passage synoptic parallels. They did whatever they pleased to him. In other words, Herod Antipas chopped him, chopped his head off. And then Jesus said, just as is written about him. Now, where was it written about him? It's interesting that my NIV study Bible says that there's nothing about Elijah suffering in the fulfillment of the prophecy. Well, Elijah suffered and John the Baptist suffered, so I don't know what the NIV study Bible is talking about. Let's see how Elijah suffered. This is under Ahab. You probably know the story. 1 Kings 19, 1 through 10. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. Verse 3, Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angels told him, Get up and eat. And then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, Get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Then on the strength of that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, further south in the Sinai Desert. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Oh, well, that's enough to see. That that was not a pleasant time. He was in exile, threatened to be killed. And, of course, John the Baptist had his head hurt also. He was treated badly, too. So, yeah. I think it's written about Elijah that he was going to be suffered. I mean, maybe that's historical, uh, an historical passage rather than a prophetic passage. In other words, Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6 doesn't talk about Elijah's suffering, but the other scriptures do, 1 Kings 19. So it is written about him that he suffered, so I don't know why the NIV Study Bible gets bent out of shape about that. One more point. For all you dispensationalists out there who love to take the scriptures literally, did Jesus take the scriptures literally when he said John the Baptist was Elijah? Was John the Baptist literally Elijah? I don't think so. You've got to be careful with that word literal. You don't want to be a liberal and allegorize everything and spiritualize everything, plain historical narrative, accounts of miracles. They shouldn't be allegorized. They should be literally taken. But when you got prophecy... Oftentimes prophecy is symbolic, and in this case it was, and this is a great illustration of it. I'm finished now with the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark 9, 1 through 13. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back from my splice of Mark 9, verses 2 through 8, and I'm finished with my discussion of the Mount of Transfiguration here in Luke, verses 28 through 36. In our next audio, we'll start with verse 37, go down through Luke 9:45, and we'll talk about the demoniac boy whom the disciples could not heal. This is what Jesus found as he came down off the Mount of Transfiguration. I hope you enjoyed this video and listen to the next one.